Now hear God's holy word from Exodus chapter 20, continuing our study in the Ten Commandments. This is the third law word. This is the third commandment of God. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy law. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be empowered to keep it and to please you in all things. Father, I pray that you would guide our thoughts and my words today so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For a while, it seemed that many of the most popular characters in our modern stories, the most well-known characters and the most well-known stories, center around people who have a secret identity or people who are leading a double life. Of course, all the superheroes, all the big superheroes have an alter ego, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, they all lead a, another life. They all have a, an alter ego, a hidden identity. But even most of the uh, most critically acclaimed television shows over the past decade or so have centered around people leading secret lives. There's the high school chemistry teacher who's a drug dealer. There's the 60s ad executive who's taken on somebody else's identity. There's the mob boss who's Uh, trying to be a normal family man. Don't watch any of those shows. I'm not recommending any of them. But I'm pointing out that some of the most popular television over the last 10, 15 years has been about people who are leading secret lives, leading double, double lives. These kinds of stories have always been with us, though. Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is all about secret identities and and hidden identities and confused identities. The Greek gods and their myths were always pretending to be humans, and uh, they really weren't who they said they were. A principal source in these stories, a principal source of the tension and the drama is the conflict between the person they are projecting and the person they really are. There's my outer life and my inner life. And we as the reader, or we as the watcher, get to see inside the the person and we get to see the outside of the person and then see the contrast. It's, it's It's a tension there. And these stories fascinate us. And they resonate with us because at some point we all feel the tension between our inner life and our outer life. Maybe we are a great superhero, a secret superhero somewhere inside. There really is greatness in us that the world is not quite ready for. Or more likely, uh, we worry about what would happen if our family and our friends found out about what we were really like, what really is going on in our mind, what, what thoughts we really harbor in our hearts. And so because there's this tension between our outer life and our inner life, we have to keep certain parts of ourselves hidden out of view so that people don't get too close to what we really are to find out what we're really like, lest we be exposed as a hypocrite. There really is this, this, this tension between the inner and outer life that, that, we, that we live with all the time. But that's a fearsome word, isn't it? Hypocrite. That's a hard-edged word. What does that mean? If I call myself a Christian and then I sin, does that mean I'm a hypocrite? Well, no, not if you confess your sin, not if you uh, readily affirm that I'm, I'm a sinner who relies on God's grace every day and I deal with sin the way that God commands it, failure or sin doesn't mean I'm a hypocrite if I've dealt with it 
the way that God prescribes? Am I a hypocrite if I don't feel like worshiping or I don't feel like serving or I don't feel like giving, but I do it anyway? Does that make me a hypocrite if I don't feel like it, but I do it? No, that, that doesn't make you a hypocrite. That's called living by faith and not by feelings. Just like when you don't feel like going to work, but you do it anyway. That's not hypocrisy. That's called faithfulness. That's called doing what you're supposed to do. That's not hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is pretending to be something that you are not. Hypocrisy is putting on a big show for everyone to see in order to distract them from the truth about yourself. Hypocrisy is being more concerned about the way things appear than the way things truly are. And we're all really, really good at this. We, we've practiced this. We would rather appear to have it all pulled together than to actually have it all pulled together. Just so long as we appear a certain way, the reality is not as important to us. And this is exactly what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. They made a big show of their deeds and their prayers so that everyone could see, and as if this was to distract everyone from what they were neglecting. They were overcompensating for things that they had left undone. Well, there's a couple of ways that this actually manifests itself among Christians, this hypocrisy. One is to boldly profess the name of Jesus, to say that you're a Christian, put a fish on your car, put a fish on your business card, uh, and then to live in a way that the word of God never actually informs any of your thoughts, any of your motives, any of your behaviors. You profess the name of Jesus with your lips but your heart is far from him. Your ideas, your beliefs are not shaped by what God has said. And you, you have no biblical basis for anything that you do or say or think. The church is very far down on your list of allegiances and priorities. You're just kind of a social, casual Christian. That's one form, that's one manifestation of hypocrisy. Naming the name of Jesus claiming to be a Christian, and then ignoring his lordship over every square inch of your life and your mind. But that has a close cousin. There's another form of hypocrisy where you really do believe what God says, and as long as you're around other Christians, you look and you sound pretty solid. You have a credible profession and a credible walk. The problem comes when you aren't around other Christians. You don't want anyone to know what you actually are. You become embarrassed of the gospel. Jesus embarrasses you and, and you become ashamed to be thought of as a Christian. And so when you're in these situations, it's much easier to speak like an unbeliever. It's much easier to act like one because you don't want to appear uncool. I mean, that's really the death sentence, right? Being uncool. That's the worst part. You don't want people to think you aren't with them in every way. So you have this secret identity. You have this double life. You don't want anyone to uncover the reality of your faith in Jesus because that would be the death of your reputation. You don't want the conflict that comes when people find out what you really believe because you know that that would end in them calling you all kinds of names. Ignorant, bigot, hateful, the list goes on. Remember what Jesus said though. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. We're worried about impressing the wrong people when we fear the shame and the ignominy that comes when we name the name of Jesus and we confess faith in him. We are worried about impressing the wrong people. And that's the subject of the third commandment. To translate the, the, the third commandment literally, you shall not take up, you shall not bear, you shall not carry the name of Yahweh your God emptily. For Yahweh will not accept the, or will not acquit the one who carries his name emptily. Now, it's often assumed that what the third commandment is talking about, this taking Yahweh's name in vain, it's often assumed that this has to do with oaths or cursing or swearing. And that's certainly one of the applications of this commandment. But it has to do with more than just how we carry the name of Yahweh on our lips, but how we carry his name on our whole lives. This is practical idolatry. This is what the third commandment deals with. Remember when we started the, this, this journey through the Ten Commandments, the first commandment deals with covenantal idolatry. The second commandment deals with liturgical idolatry. The third commandment deals with practical idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make covenants with other gods. Don't make and enter into agreements with other gods. Yahweh alone is God. Liturgical idolatry, don't make images of God and think that somehow you can worship him through idols or worship him through images. The third, the third that we turn to today is practical idolatry. That's naming God's name with your lips and living in a way that contradicts that. This, these first three commandments are really an outline of Israel's history, aren't they? When Israel uh, is formed and they go into the land, they're always going after other gods. They're committing covenantal idolatry. And then when the kingdom is divided and they're set up into Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom sets up idols and they commit second commandment idolatry liturgical idolatry. And then by the time Jesus comes, the Pharisees are no longer, um, they're, they're not carving images, but they're committing third commandment idolatry, practical idolatry. They're giving lip service to God's law and lip service to God's holiness and in the process causing men to hate God. So practical idolatry, third commandment idolatry is living these plastic flimsy lives where none of this actually matters. None of this is real. We blaspheme not only with our mouths, but with our entire lives. That's third commandment idolatry. Now I wanna unpack that. Before I do, I wanna take a brief exit along a side road, and you can always tell that when I go to chase a trail that I'm going to come back because I write everything down that I'm going to say. So when I say I'm going to take a detour, you know, oh, how long is this going to take? Well, it's, it's already written down, so I'm not making things up as I go. Um, but, but I do want to take a quick, a, a quick little detour to notice something about the laws of God in general. Notice that the first four laws of God are all in the negative. You shall have no other gods. You shall not make yourself a carved image. You shall not bear the name of Yahweh emptily. Remember the Sabbath day because you shall do no work on it. The first four commandments are in the negative. The fifth commandment is in the positive. It's something to do. Honor your father and mother. And then the rest of the commandments are all in the negative. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. They are overwhelmingly, God's laws are overwhelmingly negative. God's law is overwhelmingly stated in terms of the negative. Negative. These are things you must not do. Now that might sound 
oppressive or tyrannical, especially to our modern ears. We don't like any form of negativity or hearing things that we must not do. But in fact, if we just think about it for a moment, the negativity of God's law leads to liberty because negativity in the law limits the law. It puts God-imposed boundaries on the law. And this is a critical feature of God's law that we need to hear and learn as we think about the world that we live in. How we view the state and the family and the roles of the state and the family and the role of the church and how we rule in our own spheres of authority depends upon our understanding of God's law. So here's what I want to posit and, and put before you. The negativity of God's law is liberating. Let me give you a few examples. When God put Adam and Eve in Eden, he gave them one no in an ocean of yeses. He set up a tree that they must not eat from while inviting them to eat of all of the other trees. There's one negative in a, in a world, a universe of positives. Do not eat from this tree. Eat from all the other trees. Go explore and take dominion and dress and keep and leave and cleave and and take all of the adventures that you want to in this whole great wide world, but you must not eat from this one tree. One no in, a, in an ocean of, of yeses, a, an entire world of possibilities. And then, and then after the fall, where now we have to deal with sin and death, when God communicates a more fully developed law here at Sinai, when he gives the Ten Commandments, he still utilizes the negative. He says no to something, and his law deals with a particular specific evil. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. That's direct, and it's plain. And in his law, he gives human societies the authority to govern themselves by his law. And because God's law has boundaries... Therefore, the state has boundaries. The law is limited. Therefore, the state is limited. Outside the very specific limited bounds of the law, all of life is free. Outside of some simple prohibitions, all of life is full of liberty. When God says, you shall not steal, that means that the state can only prohibit theft. It cannot control the property that you earned by working for it. It has no jurisdiction over that. When God says, do not blaspheme or do not bear false witness, that is the speech that is prohibited, which means all other speech is free. The negativity of the law limits the scope of the law and it limits the scope of the state and it promotes self-government. God's law has this wonderful liberty built into it. And this is why we're studying it right now. It's because it's so critical as we process the world around us today to know that God's law is liberating. This is a vital concept because lately I hear a great deal of mocking of freedom as if it really weren't that important, as if independence from tyranny is not worth fighting and dying for. As if oppression is just something we can adjust to. And a love for liberty is pointless, at least pointless, if not a little unhinged. 
Like, if you love freedom, you're crazy. You're wacko. You're nuts if you love liberty. But if you have a biblical view of the world, you know that God's law promotes human liberty. And in promoting human liberty, promotes human flourishing. But where we hate God's law and where societies reject God's authority, you cannot live with lists of, of, of short negatives, you shall not. Where we hate God's authority and we hate God's law, we go for long lists of you shalls. You must, you are ordered to. You see the difference between the negativity of laws and positivity of laws? Negative laws are very limited in scope and focus. Positive laws dictate what you must do, not what you must not do, what you are ordered to do, what you have to do. Why is this? Why do tyrants turn to positive laws? It's because freedom is terrifying. It is terrifying for all manner of despots and tyrants. The most Outwardly atheist nations are the most totalitarian, most controlling citizens' lives, commanding them not just what they must not say, but what they must say. Not what they must not do, what they must do, and therefore what they must think. Predominant positivity in laws assumes that the state is omnicompetent. It assumes that the state knows what's better for you and best for you better than you do. Everything, when laws are positive, everything falls under the authority of the state. There's nothing outside of the jurisdiction of the state. If the law is limited, the state is limited. And the goal becomes, um, in an unlimited state, the goal becomes not to just restrain evil, but to restrain men. You're hoping not to just control evil, but to control men. Then nothing becomes indifferent. There's no area over which the state can't rule. And in time, the state becomes more and more of a nanny, and the people become more and more childlike and ignorant and unable to care for themselves, trusting only in the state. Now, why is this important? It's because liberty is risky. And effeminized cultures retreat to safety. Notice I said effeminized. I'm not mocking true feminine virtues. I'm mocking a mockery of feminine virtues. You know, women in the Bible are real feminine women, and they crush heads with millstones, and they nail guys' heads to the floor with a tent peg. That's real feminine glory. Real women raise warriors of their children, both sons and daughters. That's real feminine glory. Effeminate cultures are a mockery of feminine glory, where men imitate women rather than becoming real men, and that's an affront to, to liberty. You see, masculine societies take risks. Effeminate societies love safety. Masculinized societies love liberty because it's required in order to build something. It's required in order to do something. You see, if we're still living in a free society, it's incumbent upon us not to allow any elected official to take jurisdiction over things that neither God nor the constitution of our society allows them to take jurisdiction over, to refuse them that authority that is not theirs, that comes from this positivity, this, this, this thinking that I must declare what you must do, that's outside of their bounds and outside of the jurisdiction. And our response to that our faithful response to that, when we're told to do things that are outside of their jurisdiction, our response to that is, no thanks, we're fine, move along, pound sand, we're done, we're not. 
the basis of liberty and flourishing is in God's law. Now, let's get back on the highway. I wanted to mention that so that you notice as we work through this, the purpose of the negativity of the law. Let's get back to the third commandment. The word take, as in taking God's name in vain, the word take is bear or lift up or carry. And it's the very same word that's used when Aaron the high priest carries the names of the 12 tribes on his breastplate into the holy place. He, he bears their names. It's also the same verb used when the Levites bear the furniture and the fixtures of the tabernacle as they move from place to place. It might be a curious mental image when you think of the wilderness wanderings of seeing these men carry furniture through the wilderness as if they didn't know where the U-Haul was or the, or the Penske truck was. They're carrying this furniture. They're bearing. It's the same word. They're bearing the fixtures of the tabernacle. But remember, the tabernacle is where the presence of Yahweh rests. It's where God's people meet with him. It's there that he dwells in the midst of his people. So as they're carrying the temple and as they're carrying the furnishings and the furniture and the fixtures, they're symbolically carrying, they're bearing Yahweh. Psalm 22 says, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Israel carries, Israel bears Yahweh and something else is going on. He's carrying them. In Deuteronomy 1, God says, I carried you as a man carries his son. They bear him and bear his name and his house, and he bears them up. And it's the same word. It's the very same word that's used in the third commandment. You shall not bear the name of Yahweh lightly. Bearing, carrying, it's the same word. This word also comes up a few times in Leviticus for bearing, uh, bearing or carrying of guilt and sin and iniquity. If you're not forgiven, you carry, you bear your sin. In some places like Genesis 50, being forgiven is literally having your sins lifted off, borne away, taken off of you. Joseph lifted off. He bore away the burden of his brother's sins against him. If your sins are lifted off, then who carries them? Isaiah 53 tells us that the man of sorrows bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. So let me put all this together. I'm, I'm throwing a lot of data points out there. Let me, let me put this all together. You either carry the name of Yahweh, you carry the name of Jesus, you bear the name of Yahweh, or you carry your own sins. And if you carry Yahweh's name emptily or in vain, that's evidence that you're carrying your own sins and you're not forgiven. Because in, a, in, the, in the commandment or the warning in this, in this commandment, Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who bears his name in vain. Who bears the guilt if we bear his name emptily? We, we do. And the word translated vain, you shall not bear his name in vain. The word vain has two connotations, powerlessness and falsehood. The man who carries God's name in vain could be the one who pays lip service to Christ, but really doesn't believe any of it, as we said earlier. He doesn't consider anything in the Bible to be actually that important, and so he's powerless, he's impotent. He doesn't trust that any of it works or changes anything. That's carrying God's name in a powerless way, in an ineffective way, in a passive way. And then there's the one who actively but falsely carries the name of God in a way that causes men to hate God and blaspheme him. One whose life is an open and direct contradiction of everything God's love, uh, God, God loves, that, that is one who is carrying out evil in the name of Jesus. <clears throat> Those who claim to love Jesus, but do everything in the most severe, dead, hard-hearted, unsympathetic, unforgiving manner possible. 
That is carrying his name in vain. The living and triune God is life and he is joy and he is peace and he's restoration. But there are those who carry his name where it's all about destruction and depression because in the end, it really isn't about carrying Jesus's name. They're seeking their own power and their own authority and lording power over others. There are many ways that this is manifested, but third commandment, practical idolatry comes down to this. It's claiming things with your lips and living a life that doesn't match up. Saying one thing to put on an appearance, naming God's name, but not bearing God's name or his image in a way that brings honor to that name. And this is a commandment, as I said, comes with a warning. God will not acquit those who carry his name emptily. If you carry God's name in an empty way, there's another thing that you carry, that's your guilt. And you will carry that until you submit your life to Jesus and God lifts that burden of guilt off of you and places it on Jesus and replaces that guilt in you with his name and righteousness. If we are going to bear the name of Yahweh, not in an empty, hypocritical way, But if you and I are going to bear it in a powerful and productive way and do this in an age of absolute insanity and do this in a way and in an age where there's a hatred of God everywhere, then that's going to require of us a decision. Sooner or later, we're going to be in a position to either keep the third commandment or keep our reputation. There are times and places where you can't keep both. You can either keep the third commandment and bear God's name, bear the name of Jesus in power and in an authoritative way, or you can hold on to your reputation. There are times where we must obey God rather than to seek the approval of wicked men. There's so much pressure. There's pressure on us from friends and coworkers, from family and society. Great nauseating pressure to be normal and accepted and smart, and cool, and chill. So much pressure, and we crave approval and respectability. And yet the pathway to acceptance by this society is requiring of us more and more compromise and foolishness and rejection of the truths of the gospel. To be welcomed by this society requires you to affirm things that are 100% in opposition to God's word. And they will not tolerate differences of opinion or differences of position. They are completely intolerant of your position. You think that we're still having discussions? You think we're still having dialogue? We aren't. We think that we're still having a conversation. They're throwing bricks. They're throwing rocks. It's past discussion for them. For us, we, we're still trying to be polite and gentlemanly. They don't accept. They are completely intolerant. And when you speak up and when you bear the name of God in a powerful way and when you assert God's absolute authority, they hate you and they will not tolerate you and they are done with you. The discussion is over. The good news is that Jesus told us that this is what's going to happen. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, he said, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil, right? That's what happens with with positive laws that promote certain uh, 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 beliefs. If you don't submit, you're evil. If you don't submit to the mandates and the edicts, you're evil, right? It's not just you have a difference of opinion, you're evil. And Jesus said this was going to happen. Revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. 
they're going to do this. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. When you are faced with that decision to either keep the third commandment or keep your reputation, and you run into this conflict, you run into hatred and exclusion and opposition, and your impulse is to retreat. Your first impulse is to duck and cover. But don't hide and don't give up and don't protect your reputation. Sacrifice your reputation. Lay it right out there. You know what? It means nothing to me if my name is mud so long as the name of Jesus is exalted. It doesn't matter. I don't care about my reputation so long as the reputation of Christ is intact through my life and through my ministry and through my family. That's all that matters to me. That's, that's all I care about. The Bible has some things to say about a good reputation. Having a good name among honorable men is a blessing, but despising the name of Jesus, acting like you don't know Jesus in order to gain a good reputation with perverted men is a violation of the third commandment. Jesus himself gave up his own reputation to save us. Philippians, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The whole world of humanity one day is going to bear the name of Jesus, not in vain, but in worship and in humility to the glory of God the Father. Remember this when you are inclined to be ashamed of Jesus or you get your feelings hurt because some reprobate calls you evil or some reprobate calls you stupid or some reprobate calls you ignorant. Remember this. When you carry the name of Jesus in vain, you cross over to the wrong side of history because of all of humanity. As we just heard from Philippians, all of humanity will one day carry his name in honor. Might as well get started now. Because Jesus made himself of no reputation because he suffered and died for the world. He gets the highest name in the world. He died for the world. He gets the highest name in the world. So if you want a great name, you have to lose yours. You have to lose your name and you have to bear his name to sacrifice whatever false projection of yourself that you put out there to impress other people, put away all hypocrisy and carry the name of Jesus. That's how we keep the third commandment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your law. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, once again, you would help us to obey it. We don't do this to earn your love. We don't do this to merit your favor in any way, but we do this because we love you so much. Because you have done so much for us, we respond in thanksgiving and praise. And we do that which is pleasing to you. Father, please give us your Holy Spirit that we may have the boldness to do this in the day of persecution in the day of trial and temptation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.